Welcome to the Voices of Resilience podcast, a podcast series by NAML, a registered social enterprise and non-for-profit organization that helps forcibly displaced people earn a better living through dignified remote employment. We provide training and marketable skills and collaborate with organizations that support training in the digital skills required in today's digital economy. Hi, my name is Nassim Majidi. I'm the co-founder and director of Samuel Hall, uh, and I'm leading our migration and displacement pillar. Awesome. Well, it's nice to meet you, Nassim. And um, so what we really want to get a sense of is, wonder if you could tell us about the organization, Samuel Hall, what it is that, that you do um, there. And I think we wanted to talk a little bit about your uh, paper that you co-wrote, Storytelling in Research with Refugees. So if you mm-hmm. just, yeah, just start by telling us about the organization, what's the mission of the organization and what kind of projects do you work on? Yes, so Samuel Hall is a social enterprise dedicated to research on migration and displacement. So we conduct uh, a range of the research from more academic uh, research to action research, which is research that is supposed to inform policies and programs designed to help migrants um, of of all sorts and walks of lives and countries. So we conduct uh, research that can inform those programs. We do program evaluations. We support the design of policies. But what's really interesting is how it all started. And I'd like to take you back a bit with me and tell you a bit more about the story of Samuel Hall, because we started Um, in 2010 in Afghanistan. So today we actually celebrate the 13 years of Samuel Hall um, with our office still holding strong in Afghanistan. And we also have offices in Kenya, Tunisia and Germany and researchers present across Africa from Morocco to Ethiopia. And so why did we choose this path? Why did we choose to have our offices embedded in the context that we study? Mostly because we believe in telling stories, telling about the history of the countries and the people we research, but also to be part of that story with them, to be embedded in the context that we study. Um, So it's very important for us not to come in and out of research context, but to really be part of the context that we study, bringing in academic knowledge on migration in our case, to inform the work of policymakers and practitioners that work too, um, change hopefully the lives of of migrants across the world. Oh, that sounds very interesting. And uh, you said so. It's your birthday now. You said thir- thirteen years. <laughs> yes, 13 Samuel years. Hall is celebrating his thirteenth birthday um, today, oh, um, and it again means a lot to us because a lot of the context where we work, let's say Afghanistan or Ethiopia or other countries, have been through an incredible incredible amount of political pressures, but also pressures by governments to control borders, to control migration. And for us, it's even more important in these very difficult political times where societies are often more prone to excluding rather than including that we use our research to really advance an agenda that is about connecting communities to change makers for more inclusive societies. So everything we do is about trying to create those connections uh, and create a space for inclusion. Right. And what's what has been the big, biggest difference that you notice in terms of, you, know, you said you, you embed yourselves in the, the, um, the place that you're working. So how, what have you noticed about that difference as opposed to not doing that 
um, as other researchers maybe do. So, yes, of course. I mean, one of the the benefits of specializing ourselves in specific geographies and specific thematics is that we see changes across time and we can also do more comparative research. So let's take an example. When I started doing this research um, in 2007 in Afghanistan, I spent a lot of time at border areas between um, Afghanistan and Pakistan, but also at the border with between Afghanistan and Iran. And so back then in 2007, I saw one, uh, one let's say, phenomenon of migration um, at, the, at the Western border. It was mainly about men, single adult men going in and out of, um, of their country to seek work in Iran. But when I came back to those same border areas, year after year, over a decade and now 16 years, what I see now is children, unaccompanied minors, families uh, being deported, being sent back to Afghanistan. I see a real demographic change because I've been there and because we've been there throughout these last, you know, over a decade now in these contexts. Um, So what we see is a change of patterns, a change of who is migrating, what protection issues are they facing, what support do they need. And as much as we see a growing change in terms of the profiles of those migrating, we also see at the borders less and less humanitarian or development organizations present to help them. So being there and seeing firsthand the realities of these borders helps us see a bit of that disconnect between migrants and those that are supposed to be mandated to protect them or to help them. And so what we try to do is try to use our data to advocate for the responses that are needed, to hold those organizations and governments accountable, and to really elevate the voices of the people that we meet of all ages, gender, and socioeconomic backgrounds. Excellent. Thank you for that. And the paper that you wrote then, um, the storytelling in research with refugees, you tell us a little bit about that. Of course. So that paper um, takes us, brings us to East Africa and focuses on some of our work on Somalia. I mentioned to you the importance for us to do comparative work. And from the start, it was very important for us to to move beyond Afghanistan to try to see what other contexts can we study that can really teach us something, not just about policies and programs, but about how to do the type of research that we do. Um, So we came to um, the Horn of Africa in 2014 with our office in Nairobi, um, and we do a lot of research across the region, notably in Somalia. So we wrote this paper as a reflection with Adam Saltzman, who on his side works on the Thai-Burmese border. We worked um, on this paper together to show how even researchers, we're part of this landscape, we're responsible, we have to be accountable. And how can we make our research a tool to render more, to give more visibility, more audibility to migrants and not just be engaged in what is often very extractive research, as I mentioned, coming in and out and getting data and then delivering the data and the analysis to to aid organizations or others. So what role do we play as researchers in upholding certain standards, certain ethics of research when studying forced migration specifically? Um, So the paper really focuses on this, on how to um, ensure that we contribute Um, to the visibility and audibility of, in our case, in my case in Somalia, of refugee returnees. 
And we used, both of us, Adam and I, we used different methods around storytelling to make that, to make that happen. And why did you choose the form storytelling as a, as a, the, as a genre? Yeah, so we, we realized that, you know, there's a few obviously important considerations you need to keep as a researcher. One um, is to, to let people tell their own stories. And so for us, storytelling is also more than just telling an individual's story. It's about self-representation and about claims for belonging and justice. So it's about how a group of individuals can make sense of their own experience. So what we we wanted to promote with the storytelling approach is a form of knowledge that is very much grassroots level um, that can be used to design research programs and policies, but that can also speak for the many. So through the voices of the people that we've met um, to be able to get a real understanding of dynamics that are more societal dynamics that we really need to understand. So for us, it's a powerful tool to gather data, but also to ensure that those we want to speak to, those we want, um, the change makers, the policy makers, the practitioners that I mentioned, that they have data that is also relatable to them. Stories often invoke empathy, a personal connection. Um, stories can provide greater sense of trust and willingness to engage with each other. It just makes issues that are extremely complicated, just more human. So it was both a way to ensure that the people we research have this opportunity to, to self-represent themselves, but also a way to ensure that those who hear their messages can hear them in a way that they can also relate to. So that's the power of storytelling methods in qualitative research is to open up this space for people to tell their stories and for others to be able to hear those stories um, in a very relatable human way. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I'm always fascinated by hearing people's individual stories. And we've been doing this Voices of Resilience podcast now for, I think we've on seven or eight episodes and just hearing all the various different stories and people's experiences from wherever they started to where they've ended up now. Just it, um, that humanizes the, um, the experience and, you know, it, that empathy, as you mentioned, and suddenly you can understand better what their situation is, what they've gone through uh, from a human level. Um, so I think that's a, a, a fantastic thing, the, the storytelling part. So um, if you were thinking about um, in terms of what's important, what are some of the important things that researchers and stakeholders should consider when they're working with personal stories of displaced or marginalized populations? What would, what would you say to that? And, and then how should we engage with these voices? Thank you. That's a very good, very good question. Um, and I would maybe underline three aspects and there are probably more, but the, let's start with these three. First, one of the most important elements, obviously of any, of any research or storytelling approaches is to get the informed consent about the ways the story will be told uh, and disseminated. I think I see it a lot um, in our sector and uh, that there's a tendency to record the voices, to record the notes and the transcripts, but not really necessarily 
to let people know, the women, men, youth that we speak to, to let them know what use will be made of it. Again, we can't mix one data set with another, one year with another. We really need to stay true to the purpose of a research, how it's been explained, the consent that was given for that specific use, and not to make use of it in other in other ways. People will confide in you and share their stories for a specific purpose, and we need to, to really stay true to that. Secondly, um, there's an element of time and space that is hugely important. And so the key is to give people the space, a safe space to tell their story. And to be able to have that safe space, sometimes you just need to also better integrate elements of time to develop that trust, to give them time to tell their story at their pace um, and at their yeah, in, in ways that make them more comfortable. So the conversation might might start on one day. Um, you know, in our in our work, we do a lot of focus group discussions. So it might start with one person you meet in a focus group discussion, but it won't necessarily end there. And the experience that I share from Somalia in the paper that we published in the Journal of Refugee Studies really speaks to that. It's about one man that I spoke in one that I met in one focus group discussion in Kismayo. He was part of a group of um, young men who returned from uh, being born and raised in Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya and returning to their ancestral homes in Kismayo in Somalia. And so talking to him in that one conversation with his peers in a group was enough for the purpose of the project that I had, but he had more to share and he wanted to share more. And so creating that space and being observant that there's there's a an urge for more and um and an aspiration for more is really important. And being able to open that space for that continued exchange, I think, is is incredibly important and oftentimes hard to build in, but one that we have as researchers to a space that we have to open up. And then the third aspect I would say is we have to be careful not to just provide snapshots and not to generalize from one story. Uh, not to just provide a picture of a moment of just of one individual representing a broader a broader group. So storytelling then has to be more than just that one story. It's again, as I mentioned, about broader claims of self-representation um, and not just about one individual, but about what uh, that individual can tell us, not just about themselves, but also about a broader group of individuals that they can that they relate to and that they can speak on behalf of. So really starting with that one person and trying to expand the story to be a way of challenging narratives about people, about communities, uh, and really using storytelling as a, as a form of knowledge um, that, can, that can really have a, a bigger impact. So I think those would be my three, uh, my three recommendations from my own experiences. Excellent. And how does that relate to participatory action research and autoethnography? How does how does that relate? Yeah. yeah. So in our in our paper, we speak about two methods, so two ways of of using storytelling um, to advance the type of research or action research that we do, which refers to research that is there to inform um, the humanitarian or development aid sector. Um, so Adam in the paper speaks of participatory action research, uh, which is essentially a way um, to bring in, uh, in his case, um, migrants as part of the research and not just as those being researched. 
So a way to create a meaningful um, collaboration um, with, uh, with a group of people that he was meant to research. So Adam basically explains how in 2013 at the Thai border, uh, he was among a group of Burmese forced migrants working in grassroots um, activist uh, and direct service organizations. So what he did is, is he built a research program with them um, to have them be not just the researched, but the researchers who would help basically design stronger responses to gender-based violence and prevention activities. Now, in my case, I used autoethnography. And this came actually, the idea came from a beautiful book written by Shahram Khosravi uh, on his own journey. Uh, he wrote a book about his own journey as, a, as an illegal migrant uh, from Iran to Europe. And so I discovered through this book um, autoethnography as a, as a tool. And so I thought, why don't we try to apply this to Somalia, where we were asked to do an evaluation of some aid programs. So I thought instead of just myself going in, collecting stories and analyzing the impact of a program, why don't we ask um, those who are the so-called beneficiaries or those who receive the aid to also be those who can feedback themselves um, on, on the help that was given to them. So we use the format of autoethnography, which was basically making the beneficiaries, the evaluators, the researchers, moving away from traditional evaluation techniques um, and to have them in the first place in the baseline, we had them answer some questions, we explained our research, and then we handed part of the evaluation to them and we said, this evaluation will last a period of three years. Uh, we have a baseline, a midline, and an endline part of our data collection. Why don't you lead in your community a diary, your own ethnography of how this specific program has impacted the lives of your community? And by just giving them the time and the space, as previously mentioned, to lead the data collection, we train them, uh, we accompany them, throughout. So this is the story that, that you know, I recount in this paper. Um, and we had them, basically, we had in this one man, for example, Abdi, whose name has been changed, who, who became a lead evaluator, um, speaking on behalf of his community, but really collecting their stories as part of an autoethnographic approach. That sounds really fascinating. I'll have to have a look at, at that. And uh, could you just say the book again? What was the name of the, the title of the book? Of, on the um, yes, so the so the name of the of the author is Shahram Khosravi, and his name and his book is called Illegal Traveler: An Auto Ethnography of Borders. Okay, thanks for that. Now, just switching gears a little bit, how can we work towards changing the narrative and breaking and breaking the stereotype about refugees and migrants and displaced people? I know that's a big question, but What's your take on that? Yes, and there are multiple narratives we need to break. So the challenge is really there. Um, there's the narrative of policymakers, of politicians on migration. There's the narrative of the humanitarian and development sector on migration. There's the narratives ourselves as researchers we offer of, of migration. And so you have these multiple narratives. And what's really missing is, well, the narratives of the migrants themselves. So this is where... 
the type of autoethnography that can be done is really essential is basically giving them the pen, the paper, the mic, whatever form of, of representation, giving them, you know, visual forms of rep representation, doing more um, photo stories. There's many ways we can tell stories, but really including them as the researchers in any research that we do, at least that the pledge that we want to uphold ourselves as researchers is being in this type of collaborative process from the start of a research to the to the last pages and last uh, dissemination of a research. And that's oftentimes easier said than done because the budgets are not necessarily there to promote this type of collaboration. Um, funding for research always goes to the same organizations or to universities. So we all also have to challenge the ways in which funding is channeled. We have to challenge the ways uh, in which analysis is done. And that means really deconstructing, unlearning what we've been doing and building new ways. But again, just the same way that in 2007, I didn't know that there could be such a thing as uh, a social enterprise dedicated to migration research, you know, which is what I've been doing now for the last decade. I think there's ways that we can think about the next decade and the type of research and the type of narrative um, that, can be, that can be shaped. And again, just to come back to the example of Abdi, in in uh, in the paper um, that I wrote with Adam Saltzman uh, in Somalia, when we basically told Abdi that he would be our, one of our evaluators on the ground, but using an auto ethnographic approach, um, he started to keep a journal. He started to keep a journal, and initially he spoke from his perspective, and it was very much centered on himself. And then because it lasted days and days and days, and after a while, he didn't have so much more to share about his perspective, he started turning to others in his community. And so little, the story, little by little, the story he began to tell was no longer just about himself, but about the many women in his community who he realized have actually managed better than male counterparts in developing their own you know, female business businesses. Uh, and he realized that women were having more meaningful and purposeful pursuits than men. And in some ways, they were able to better use the aid that was coming in than, let's say, men of his of his age. So just giving him that time and that space, he shaped another narrative that contested even his own narrative. He shaped another narrative, which was about women as central actors in the economic life upon return in his community in Somalia. He spoke about his own wife's economic activity, uh, how it's their lifeline. Uh, he then talked about other women in the community. So again, starting with the self, starting with his family, and then branching out to others who were playing an essential role, not just as mothers, but also as students of vocational training programs, as role models for other young women, as self-employed and economic actors. So just... Giving that space and that time can help shape many different types of narratives and offer perhaps a new narrative that can rally everyone around it. And I think that's the end goal is to not just critically analyze the narratives that exist and offer another narrative, but to rally everyone around, around that new constructive way forward. Awesome. I like it. <laughs> And as we wind down now, thank you. Thank you for all that you shared so far. And I just want to check in to see if you have any anything else that you want people to know or anything that you wanted to 
to share uh, to to our our audience? Yes, I mean, recently, just um, just a few weeks ago, we had another workshop here in Nairobi just to let your audience know how much these conversations are really timely, pertinent, and relevant now. We had a workshop with refugee-led organizations in Uganda and Kenya that had come together for, for a workshop in Nairobi. And these are refugee-led organizations that are obviously grassroots organizations that are getting funding from many foundations, from IKEA Foundation, Hilton, MasterCard. So they're getting support from a range of, let's say, um, foundations, but they're not getting their foot into other types of funding or into policy conversations so they they feel limited in the sense that they're present on the ground they're doing great work they're able to support um many types of different responses from uh, financial inclusion uh, of their community members uh, to the protection of women to access to schools for children so they're very active but somehow their activity is very localized and kept at that grassroots level and the big question for them is we have, you know, how can we get our voices beyond our level, beyond our communities? We know we're strong here, but how can we share what we've learned uh, with a broader audience and with an audience of policymakers who can also invest in us to scale our impact? And so they feel limited in their ability to advocate and to be heard. And so what we're trying to do on our end is to invest in that collaboration because we realized what they really need in their specific case is they need training to do stronger advocacy, whether it's digital advocacy, any other forms of advocacy, we can help them there. We have a research communications team, they can train them. So we're thinking about now how to collaborate so that we can ensure that their voice is heard beyond their community or their country and that they can share their experiences because the more we can get these refugee-led organizations to share their experiences, in this case, between Uganda and Kenya, but think more broadly, think across different regions of Africa or across different continents of the world, then we'll start building really a global conversation on migration that is not just what governments are pushing forward or political parties, but really that migrants themselves are shaping and putting out there. So there's many ways in which this is a very timely and relevant conversation. Thank you for that. And one final message, so uh, not necessarily a message, but a takeaway. What would you want listeners to take away from everything they've listened today? I think the key takeaway would be it starts with one story, um, one person you'll meet, one person whose story will touch you, um, impact you, move you to do something. Uh, so it's about taking that one story and then seeing what can you do with it, the sentiment that you felt, whether it's a sentiment of injustice or of uh, feeling inspired, whatever that sentiment is, how can you turn it into action? So I think that's also, I guess, one of the great um, benefits of storytelling is through this element of empathy and emotion, um, empowering yourself and others to turn to action, to do something about it. So that would be my key takeaway is listen to that story, be sensitive to and open to how it touches you. Uh, and on that, try to try to find ways 
to articulate and advocate and turn to action. I like it. Action. That's it. Great mm-hmm. stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, Nassim, for um, giving up your time to come onto the podcast and have this conversation with us. Really appreciate that. And we're like three hours. You're three hours ahead. So are you coming towards the end of yeah, your It's day? almost five o'clock. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> almost time. I'm just, yeah, cool. Awesome. Anyway, thanks a lot and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you so much, Clay. Have a good day. Before ending our episode, we want to invite you to participate in the events organised as part of the Migration Summit 2023, which will happen throughout the month of April. The summit, organised along with the MIT Refugee Action Hub and Quran Foundation, will explore the theme co-creating pathways to learning, livelihood and dignity through virtual and in-person events hosted by participating individuals and partners around the world. Make sure you check the Migration Summit website at migrationsummit.org to learn all you need to know about the events, sub-themes or different summit editions and subscribe to get updates.